0: Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by Surfpro. with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. August 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution which allowed women the right to vote. Tennessee played a pivotal role as it was the 36th and final state needed to make the 19th Amendment the law of the land. Although Tennessee can make the claim of being the state that made this important change in American history happen, it belies the fact that Tennessee and the South was late in embracing the suffrage movement. In truth, it took decades of hard fighting by women across the nation to claim this most basic of rights. The suffrage movement is a case study in grassroots politics. Small towns across the state and nation organized local suffrage groups to help further the initiative. In the end, the 19th Amendment did not, in fact, claim for all women the right to vote. For African-American women, many of whom contributed to the suffrage movement, it would take many more decades for them to secure the right to vote without stipulations. Today on History's Hook, we'll explore the history of women's suffrage in Tennessee. I'm joined in the studio by my two co-hosts, Murray County historian Joanne McClellan, and professor of history at Columbia State Community College, Dr. Barry Gidcombe. Good morning to you both.
2: Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Tom.
1: Together, we're joined via phone by Dr. Carol Busey, Professor of History at Volunteer State Community College. Dr. Busey holds degrees from Baylor University, George Peabody College, and Vanderbilt University. She's an author of a number of textbooks and articles on Tennessee history and has consulted with the Tennessee State Museum's Women's Suffrage Exhibit. She is also featured in By One Vote, Nashville Public Television's documentary on Tennessee's ratification of the 19th Amendment. Welcome to History's Hook, Dr. Busey.
3: Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you today.
1: Before we get into Tennessee's role in the 19th Amendment, let's talk a little bit about the history of the women's suffrage movement. Let's sort of set the stage uh, leading up to 1920. Is there a particular event in American history that can be called the beginning of the women's suffrage movement?
3: Well, the, the specific event that is referred to as the beginning of the movement, although we certainly know that Abigail Adams herself felt that women should be included in having equal rights when the Declaration of Independence was written, when she wrote her husband that very famous letter saying, remember the ladies, while he was serving in the Continental Congress, which was busy writing the Declaration of Independence. But, of course, he took that as a joke, and it was ignored. Now, the modern-day, if you want to call it modern-day suffrage movement, really was an outgrowth of the anti-slavery movement. Uh, A group of women had gone over to London to an international anti-slavery meeting in about 1840, and to their total horror, when they got there... They were not allowed to speak in the meeting. They couldn't sit on the floor. They had to sit in the visitor's gallery. And they were treated what they considered to be rather unfairly, since there were many women in the North in the United States who really believed that slavery was morally wrong. So Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton returned to the United States determined to do something about women's rights, not suffrage per se, but specifically how women were treated. And of course, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had several children along the way, and they didn't get around to calling this meeting until 1848, when they called a meeting at the Methodist Church in Seneca Falls, New York. Now here is this group of people coming. It is billed as a woman's rights convention. And so during the course of this meeting, They vote on several resolutions Related to rights that that women should have And Elizabeth Cady Stanton Who was quite a wordsmith Put together what became known As the Declaration of Sentiments Of the Seneca Falls Convention Now, among the people at this meeting And remember we're talking about Anti-slavery roots here Was Frederick Douglass Many of the men balked When they got to a resolution to give women the equal franchise, give women the vote, Frederick Douglass supported that. Now, this was a very clever piece of writing by Elizabeth Cady Stanton because it is patterned on the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men And women are created equal, and so it goes. But it passed with this this resolution that was about the right to vote. There were some suffrage conventions in the North in the 1850s, but then the Civil War came along. So that's where it really began.
1: It's interesting, we, we always like to make connections on history, so we're always trying to connect sort of local history to national and world history, and the Seneca Falls Convention is an easy one here. It happens, uh, as you said, in the, the mid to late 1840s, it's during the Polk administration where that happens, and there's so much reform, there are many reform movements happening across the country, this being one of the most important ones. Did, did Sarah Polk have any say in the Women's Rights Convention? Have you ever come across any information about that? I have-
3: I have never heard anything about Sarah Polk uh, supporting or opposing women's rights, but we all know from reading various biographies of her that she was indeed a co-partner with her husband. Her partner treated her with great respect and equality, and she had a tremendous influence on the decisions he made politically.
1: So it's interesting that this a group of people who are gathering in Seneca Falls and they're making this declaration of sentiments because they're they're wanting to make some change. Describe briefly what were the legal rights of women during the time period. We know they weren't able to vote. What else? What was the legal status of of women in America in this time?
3: Well, that can be summed up pretty quickly virtually none. <laughs> now i will i will tell you this having said that a single woman who was an adult had more power than a married woman married women had absolutely no rights and they could not uh own their own property if a married woman was uh, the only child of a family if when her parents died her husband received the estate and had complete control of the estate. And married women had no rights to personal property. All their property belonged to children. Now, here's an interesting little point. One of the things that had been discussed for a good long while was married women should be allowed to have control of their own property now keep in mind this is up north and we are down here in the slave holding south guess which state in the united states and it's not tennessee guess which state gave married women the first rights to
2: own property Hmm. probably mississippi
3: you are on target today (laughs) yes you are right absolutely joanne uh, Mississippi did this, and the reason is because these parents were so concerned about their daughters not being cared for that they wanted to make sure, if all else failed, the daughter could keep
2: possession of her slave hmm. so that the slaves could take care of the daughter. Right. Carol, what happened in the in the case of a divorce? Could the women well, have access to those kids? There, oh, absolutely not. There were, there were no
3: divorces to speak of. You know, physical violence, domestic violence was not a, a reason for divorce. Uh, There was practically nothing that was a reason for, for divorce. Infidelity was not a reason for divorce. And if a married woman wanted a divorce, she would have no control over any of her property or her children. Fathers had all parental rights.
1: So with the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, we have a Declaration of Sentiments. There's obviously a need, based on what we're talking about, for change to happen. Does it take off like wildfire across the nation? Do we start to see women's rights conventions all over the country?
3: Uh, No, only in New York and a few of the New England states. But I will say this. There is no mention in the National Tennessee newspapers. There were several newspapers here. There's no mention of the Seneca Falls Convention. However, they did run humorously an article about Amelia Bloomer, who was a women's rights activist and published a magazine. Um, She is better known for her fashion innovation of bloomers to give women more freedom so that they wouldn't have those long dresses to step on when they went up and down stairs. But there, there was an article about that, a, a, you know, sort of as a joke. And then they ran a, a list of candidates for a women's ticket for a New York election. It was shown in the Tennessean as well. But no, there was uh, no interest whatsoever uh, that we've ever discovered in history of Southern women who were willing to speak out. And I do want to, I want to go back to this notion of women having no right. If white married women had no right, think about the women who were enslaved. They had absolutely no control over their bodies. They had no control over their children. Think about what their lives must have been like always living in terror that they would be raped again and again, and again, or that their children would be sold and never get to see their children again.
1: With no legal recourse, no justice at their disposal at all?
3: None whatsoever. The slaves had absolutely no rights to go to court. They had no rights. They were considered property. And you go, you go into the... Uh, deed records of, of Murray County, and there are deeds for land and there are deeds for slaves.
1: Right. So the country as it heads toward the 1860s and Civil War, it's an an interesting correlation that so many of these early leaders in women's rights were abolitionists first. Uh, the Civil War takes place, the Union prevails, and the 15th Amendment allows black men to vote but leaves women out. How was that taken by women who had fought for abolition, the abolition of slavery for so many years, and were then left fighting for suffrage?
3: Not very well. The 14th Amendment is the first time that there were any reference to gender, male or men, is in the Constitution of the United States. It gave African-American men full rights as American citizens, equality under the law for African American men. So, of course, who is left out of that? African American (laughs) women. And then you have the 15th Amendment, which Susan B. Anthony, by this time, has joined Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and uh, she is outraged that men only are gonna be given the right to vote because she really felt like when African American men were given the right to vote that women would be too. And as a result of this, she became furious with uh, Frederick Douglass because she felt that he should have demanded equal rights for women, and he had not. But his his justification was African-American men need this right now. Your time will come. Your hour will come. And so that caused the women in the Northeast who supported getting the right to vote, that caused them to split. Some felt that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were the two who felt that they had to push for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Another group said, no, we just need to work state by state. And so some women, there were two different national suffrage associations uh, for a good long period of time, basically differing on how to accomplish the goal of getting the right to vote.
2: What was their overall strategy?
3: Well, their strategy, the the strategy of the women who wanted state by state rather than uh, a U.S. constitutional amendment, was just to go one state at a time. And if that had happened, none of the southern states would have ever approved woman suffrage, I don't think. You know, we have the early states who do give women uh, suffrage uh, are the new states that are admitted out in the west. So we have Wyoming and New um, Utah and others of those western states giving women the right to vote before the states in the East. But they they differed over that strategy and I don't think the other side was bitter, but Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were very, very angry and Anthony in particular felt very hostile towards Frederick Douglass for a good number of years. They ultimately reconciled but she was she was very bitter about it.
2: There was a strong anti-suffrage group. What? Uh, why did they oppose it?
3: Well, the main reason, I think, at least in the North, was biblically based. It was uh a a reading of the apostle paul a reading of the book of genesis an interpretation of all of those passages and in the north it definitely was a a religious taboo that women were women were supposed to be subservient to their husband and were not equal now, of course, in the South, we have an addition to to religion. Here, it was a matter of race, and I, I really do think I should say a little bit about that because after the ex-Confederates came back into power in 1877, in all states and in Tennessee, the ex-Confederates came back into power in 1870. They rewrote their constitutions. Every southern state rewrote their state constitutions. They created all manner of roadblocks to prevent African-American men from voting. And then, of course, in uh, Tennessee, we had the Klan raising its ugly head here but there were similar organizations in every state of the former confederacy and so there was a real effort to keep african-american men from voting in the south so some members of congress from the north felt that this had to be dealt with and and fixed and so they began uh, and introduced what are known as force bills to force states to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment. In other words, if you don't do it, Congress, the United States government, is going to do it for you. And, of course, Southerners, not so much Tennessee, but the other 10 Confederate states, have had troops in the South, in their states trying to protect the freed men and women. And when the troops left in 1877, these ex-Confederates, who are now in control of the states again, are determined to keep the federal government out. And so they've got representation in Congress, and they are able to prevent those force bills from being passed. They were introduced from time to time. I think there were about four of them. Uh, the, one of the last ones that was introduced was by Henry Cabot Lodge, and it, it never passed. Now, here's an interesting thing about representation in Congress. Uh, when Barry and I teach the writing of the U.S. Constitution, one of the things we talk about is the big fight at the Constitutional Convention over whether or not slaves should be counted for the purpose of determining how many U.S. representatives you're going to have in Congress. And so what came out of that was known as the Three-Fifths Compromise, which for the four of us sitting here in 2020 makes no sense. But they determined as a compromise that every slave that a person owned was counted as 3 Fifths of a person. So, what does that do to the Southern representation in Congress and the Electoral College? It makes it higher. And so, that was the way that the number of representatives was determined. And after the Civil War, with the slaves being free, now all African Americans are going to be counted as full people. So the southern states actually got more representation in Congress and had a good bit of power in blocking things, which they seem to be quite good at doing.
1: When does women's suffrage become a truly political issue, specifically sought? When do we see the issue coalesce and become a powerful political issue?
3: I think that it really becomes a a possibility during the progressive era, which, you know... Barry and I probably talk to our students about this a lot, and historians differ as to when it actually begins and when it actually ends. But it's roughly that period right around 1900 up to about 1920 when women got the right to vote with the ratification of this amendment. But I think that's when it really began to be a force to be reckoned with because you have a lot of middle-class white women in the progressive movement who were wanting government to do more, help take care of the poor, do something about these medicines that people are selling that don't cure anything, just pure alcohol, food and drugs. Uh, uh, make sure the food that is sold is clean and, and not contaminated. And the progressive movement really, I think, is where the suffrage idea began to be considered as a viable way to do things. And if women could vote, it would be easier to get these progressive things, tasks, uh, passed and, and enacted. And another thing that happens there in the late 19th century, in 1880s and 90s, is that more women are going to college. For example, one that we know a great deal about is Jane Addams. And when a woman goes to college, she gets a liberal art education. But, you know, basically, there are really only two career paths for a woman. One is teaching, and the other is social work. What you know, church denominations would call home missionaries. There was no professional nursing corps at this particular time. Nurses were women who were trained by doctors to be their assistants, but there was no licensing of nursing at this time. So these were the only two professions open to women, but you do have this educated. Group of women, and you have educated black women, educated white women, and these women are determined that they are going to have a voice because they believe that they should be treated equally.
2: It was uh, in 1896 when Mary um, Mary Church Terrell came on the scene.
3: That's absolutely correct. And
2: she was a Tennessean. You <laughs> want to tell us about her, Joanne? <laughs> she, she was a Tennessean. Uh, well, she was the one that started the National uh, Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And it was like an umbrella club for the suffrage. But they also understood that um, they had a different kind of problem because they were interested in the problems as a woman and also as a black female. So they tried to fight for suffrage and also human rights. She was college, um, college educated. So was her husband. Um, And she, as a result of what she did at the national level, there was an organization that was started at the state level by also a wife of a college professor down in, in Memphis, in the Memphis area. And here in Murray County, the educated women, the wives of the doctors and teachers started a local organization here down in Murray County. So, uh, and they were, because of the issues with the race, and they're being separate but equal, they focused here in Murray County on war efforts, on organizations to help the underprivileged. They were not, from what I can find, that they didn't do that much as far as suffrage. The organization here in Murray County started in 1917.
3: You know... Joanne, what would be a really interesting statistic if it could be found, and I'm, I'm not sure it could be in any county in the state, even the largest county, but what would be interesting to know would be what percentage of the African-American population in Murray County was even allowed to vote. I would assume that the black doctors and some of the black teachers were able to vote but I would also assume that all of the African-Americans who were simply laborers would not have any access to voting in a county like Murray County.
2: Well, it's, it's really interesting. And I have looked at that a bit. Um, and you're right, the teachers, the, the, the doctors. In fact, I had this teacher back in 1960 that always voted. And my parents, you know, in the 40s, in the 50s in the 60s they voted also um but it was a matter i think of property ownership and the ability to pay the poll tax and the ability and the ability to to pass those literacy tests.
1: We need to take a, a break right here. This is great. When when we come back, I want to talk more about the organization of suffrage. We'll continue with this conversation. Let's take a moment to listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by Pro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the women's suffrage movement in Tennessee. I'm proud to have with us Dr. Carol Busey, who is... Professor of History at Volunteer State Community College and is also the Davidson County Historian. Dr. Busey, before the break, uh, we started to talk about sort of the mechanism that is starting to drive this movement, the organization that's coming about uh, nationally. It seems to me, in my reading, that a lot of these organizations, these women's organizations, are started in the church and around schools. Can can you speak to the organization of women's suffrage?
3: Well, uh, yes, I I, I certainly can, and Yes, you're right. It was church women who first began forming voluntary associations. And this actually began before the Civil War. They identified a problem, like there was no place for children whose parents died. They became subject to the county court, and the county court essentially uh, leased out children to farmers and families that needed extra hands. Uh, for there was no orphanage and so these women formed an orphan society. They were doing that sort of thing and that kind of work intensified in towns, county seat towns in particular across Tennessee after the Civil War. The movement that really took off here in Tennessee after the Civil War was in in fact the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, The Women's Christian Temperance Union had been founded in Ohio, Francis Willard uh, had become the national president, and it came to Tennessee uh, in the very early 1890s, first in Memphis and uh, leadership does make a difference here. Selena Holman, who was a doctor's wife from Fayetteville, your neighbor down there in Columbia, uh, became the state president of the Woman's Christian Temperance Union in 1899, and it is with that that the movement really took flight and woman suffrage actually became a, a statewide thought at least. The the woman who had been state president lied, Meriwether, She left. She was from Memphis and she resigned as state president before Selena Holman became state president. Merriweather resigned so that she could devote all of her time to woman suffrage. Now, having said that, there were a lot of women in Tennessee in the WCTU, the Temperance Organization, that were vehemently opposed to women's suffrage. But the Temperance Organization, you know, we really think of it as uh, all about alcohol, which it was, but it started out as a domestic violence program. And the women who founded it, their number one concern was domestic violence, but it was caused by men drinking too much. Right. And so if if you look at it from the viewpoint of domestic violence, a way to curtail domestic violence, it looks like a much more progressive organization than history has painted that organization as being. And of course, churches very much were all in favor of the WCTU. The Methodist denomination in particular was very much in favor of, of uh, women doing this uh, leading this campaign for statewide prohibition.
1: By July of 1915, I know in Columbia uh, organizations were were coming to the forefront. The Columbia Equal Suffrage League uh, was one uh, that was started in that year. Uh, Mrs. Frederick Hardy, was appointed i think the president of that group early on uh and and so they're organizing not just in cities across tennessee at this point but even the small towns across the state are starting to organize uh women's organizations whose purpose is as you're saying including the right to vote uh that's sort of what they're heading towards but all kinds of social reform uh, movements in this time
3: and and, you know keep in mind this is the era of missionary organizations being founded, women's missionary groups in various denominations. And those became educational experiences as the denominations here in the United States start sending missionaries abroad to foreign countries. And this was a way that women could learn about the world. They could learn geography. Uh, They were doing something that was educational for them. And yet they were also financially supporting these missionaries.
1: So if we take a step back just a little bit, so we're heading into the 20th century. You had mentioned early on that a number of new states as they emerged, especially the Western states, some of them allowed women the right to vote. The first attempt at a constitutional amendment happened in 1887, but failed. It's really the 1890s where we start to see this real change happening, Uh, moving into the 20th century, real organization happening, uh, even here in Tennessee and in the South, where it's a little bit more of a challenge than it had been in the Northeast. We're starting to see some real change happening what are african american women doing to organize as well
3: well why don't we let joanne answer that question about what's going on in colombia and then i will i will add something to
2: what joanne says perhaps uh, okay that's that's fair the uh, first group that organized in colombia was in 1917 and they called themselves uh, a it was like a federated club. So there were several little clubs that were members of this federated club. And they were primarily in 1917, focused on whatever activities they needed to support the men going off to war. Uh, That club was headed by uh, a Mrs. Morell. Her husband was a prominent business person here in Columbia. Uh, Also a Mrs. Albert Morell, Whose uh, father was, whose husband was the first postman here in Murray County? So they were like focused on supporting the men going off to World War One.
1: Who who are these women, Joanne? Were they educated? What what was their standing in their community?
2: Uh, they were they were educated. If you recall, when we interviewed uh, Lyman Johnson last week, uh, he talked about his uh, grandfather, and grandmother Morels. His His uh, grandfather was one of the best educated black men in, um, in Murray County, and his grandmother uh, was also very well educated. All of these African-American women were educated um, men and women in uh, Murray County. In 1943, right before World War II, uh, they also st- uh, started supporting the war effort. They sold bonds, they had stamp drives, uh, they knitted for the American Red Cross, uh, the other thing that they did was they supported training like stenographers or typists to support people who were like going off to going off to the war. And these people, too, were very well educated. The president at in the 1943 time period was a Mrs. Pett um, Davis and her husband was one of the doctors here in in Murray County. Also, the club here in Murray County was so active I guess Uh, they had a state convention down here in Murray County where at least five or six um, clubs from each of the counties in the state came down to Murray County for a state convention and that was in June of 1943 so that club was very 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 active here in Murray County and it was active really up until a few years ago Uh, there is a chapter of the club I think at TSU now I'm not sure about the chapter here in Murray County, but this club was active up until a few years ago.
1: That's amazing. There's really just a handful of clubs that can trace their history back that far. That's a, that's incredible.
2: And they were,
3: you know, they were very much uh, focused on doing things to help people.
2: Hmm. Exactly.
3: And I think you really see in, in in many of the Tennessee counties similar activities of African Americans uh, women who are the teachers and the leaders of the community, they are organizing voluntary associations. They are doing good things to help neutralize some of the discrimination against African-Americans, which we know uh, was in pretty much every county in the state. Of course, Tennessee had some counties with
2: no African-Americans at all. You know, Carol, what, what surprised me is why did it take so long? We're talking about 19, 1848 to 1920. Why did it take so long for the American society uh, to accept women's suffrage?
3: There was There was a lot of paranoia associated to what women having the right to do would do, which, of course, as it turned out, it didn't do quite in any, any of the things people were so fearful of, but you know, it was it was the, in the South. It was certainly a matter of race. If white women can vote, then black women will be allowed to vote. Or the federal government will be down here telling us that uh, we have to obey the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, and, and then the Nineteenth Amendment, which would give women the right to vote. And religion was an important. Important piece of the opposition to woman suffrage. You know, there were far more women in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which preachers approved of, than there were in the suffrage movement because uh, the, there were these religious mandates that women should not participate, that women should be silent. And so the religious obstacles were far greater for suffrage than they. There was no preacher uh, I can think of, that, uh, at least of the Protestants, that came out openly in favor of prohibition. But plenty of preachers were opposed to it. And you just start spreading fear. It's, it's really the same thing as was spread in the 50s about integrating the schools. You know, the whole societal structure was going to fall apart is what the uh, racists who led the uh, anti-integration movements of the 50s and 60s were claiming. And uh, they did the very same thing, a different group of people, but the same ideas in uh, 1910 to 1920 as to why women should not have the right to vote. Here, for example, in a little book I have, Uh, that was published in 1957. Uh, It was the first real book about woman suffrage in Tennessee, and for a long time the only book. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Anastasia Elizabeth Taylor, who was a professor at what was then Texas Women's University, Mm -hmm. uh, had gotten her Ph.D. at Vanderbilt in the late 1940s. And she wrote this little book called Tennessee, the the, the woman's suffrage movement in Tennessee. And she cites here in talking about the anti-suffrage movement in Tennessee, a person, I don't know whether it's a male or female, but M.P., as in Paul, the middle initial, M.P. Murphy of Columbia, who cited the will of God as evidence against the enfranchisement of women in the following statement. And here is the statement. If you don't mind, I'll read it to you. Please. It's not long. Divine precepts plainly forbid women participating in matters pertaining to prominence of leadership In the church of God and human government, being professedly found on biblical principles, it logically appears that women should shrink from assuming a work or position in government matters which, under existing conditions, would subject them to adverse influence. So it might put ideas in these <laughs> women's heads. <laughs> wow. So uh, here's a little assignment for you. Barry and I will always be teachers, so we will always be giving homework. Figure out who M.P. Murphy of
2: Columbia is. You got it. You got it. We we will. Oh, my gosh.
3: Carol, it, uh, it, it reminds me, and, and, and we still see this today, uh, every time uh, the norm is challenged and uh, and won't give examples but we all know what we're talking about what I'm talking about here but there's always those that come forward and say if we let this happen it's going to destroy our family values That's absolutely correct you see that in 1920 it's going to destroy the american family there are cartoons of the anti's. With you know, the man in the apron and the screaming child and the wife dressed like a businesswoman heading out the door to her job while this male is humiliated by having to wear an apron and take care of children. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the background, there's a stove with pots boiling (laughs) over on it. And there are lots of those cartoons out there. Basically, you know, I think a big part of this is nobody wants to give up power. And whether it's power in a board of elders or deacons within a church, or whether it's political power, or even families, it is nobody wants to relinquish power. And that is that is still with us, I think, today. In the Tennessee movement, when we got down close to ratification, and one thing that Tennessee did... The year before ratification was give women in tennessee partial ratification uh which i'll i'll talk about in just a minute but there were there were three groups that really opposed women voting first was the liquor industry which had been furious at women for prohibition then the second was the manufacturers the groups that hired women in small towns to work in mills and had children working in those mills and then that you also had the railroad who just simply had a tremendous amount of political power and didn't want to share it with anybody else and then you've got preachers out there preaching anti-suffrage sermons and they really intensified that after the special session began and the antis in nashville set up a museum exhibit and among the things they had in their museum exhibit as to why we can't have woman suffrage the world will stop turning was a copy of the woman's bible that had been written and edited by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And in Nashville, when that uh, was advertised, come and see the, the blasphemous things in the woman's Bible, 26 preachers signed a petition and sent it to the legislature condemning suffrage based on what was in that book. And the irony of the book, which I've got a copy here on my shelf, Number one, it's not a Bible. It is not a translation of the Bible or a paraphrasing of the King James Version. It is a commentary on only parts of the Bible that deal with women. So the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis uh, being chief among them with Eve and the two different stories of creation, are discussed. And they are it is an intellectual discussion of what these two different chapters of that book might mean, and then the New Testament, but that was inflammatory, that was highly inflammatory and and it was called the Woman's Bible, even though it wasn't really a Bible, it was a commentary.
1: Hmm. Let's talk for a minute about specifically about the 19th Amendment. You you mentioned early on that there was an initiative to try to pass women's voting rights state by state. It was becoming clear that, especially in the South, that was probably not going to happen. So at some point it became a federal initiative, uh, passing through the federal government to create an amendment to the Constitution that would allow for this. What's the time frame that we're talking about when the 19th Amendment is brought before Congress and passed there?
3: Well, Susan B. Anthony had gotten one of her friends in Congress to Introduced the first Voting Rights for Women Act, as you mentioned in the 1880s, and it was introduced every session of the Congress from that point forward, and it was promptly tabled. It was never voted on. But the momentum is growing. More states are giving women rights: some partial suffrage, some full suffrage, and uh, the momentum begins to grow from 1910 to 1920. And as Joanne pointed out. Women organizing in war work, and in this case it was World War I, that really brings about some extra momentum. Now, the two suffrage associations that had split over the 14th and 15th Amendment came back together before 1900, and now you have one national Suffrage organization, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, and it was led by Anthony primarily. Uh, then we have Carrie Chapman Catt ultimately taking the helm of that national suffrage organization. A uh, doctor Anna Howard Shaw, who was a Methodist minister, had been president of it uh, for a brief period of time. So Carrie Chapman Catt devises what she is going to call the winning plan and they are going to really have a national push for a constitutional convention so within the ranks of that you've got one division of that national association referred to as the congressional union and these were by and large younger career women who were more interested in more action It was initially chaired by a young woman named Alice Paul. And so she began the idea of suffrage parades and events and getting more publicity. The Congressional Union's job was to persuade the members of Congress, and they were going to do that. Now, take, for example, 1913. Woodrow Wilson has been elected president. Here is a man who, in 1913, has a very strong willed wife and three daughters, no sons, and yet he will not take a position on woman suffrage. So, in those days, the inauguration of the president was on March the 4th. So, Alice Paul stages a march, a suffrage march, on March the 3rd to upstage the president. Well, the president's first wife died. He married a second strong-willed woman and still won't take any position on woman suffrage. So when the U.S. finally enters World War I in 1917, Carrie Chapman-Catt says, we're going to cease our campaigning for suffrage, put our our cause on hold, our campaign, until we help America win the war. So she was ready to hang up put suffrage on pause. Uh, Alice Paul and her young, more activist group said, absolutely not, this is the time to embarrass the president. And so you have them picketing the White House, chaining themselves to the White House, being uh, uh, imprisoned, being, going on hunger, hunger strikes in prison, you see what they did. Now, they were looked upon as as radical, radical, radical. And if they had been the only voices speaking for suffrage, I don't think it would have ever passed. Hmm. But because you've got Carrie Chapman Catt still in this very moderate uh, zone, so to speak, of moderation and, and work influence, but not doing things quite as showy as the uh, Congressional Union, which becomes the National Woman's Party. It took the work of both sides, the Carrie the Chapman-Catt side and the Alice Paul side, to get the amendment through Congress and to get it ratified by 36 states.
1: On June 4th of 1919, the 19th Amendment, giving the women the right to vote, passes Congress. In order to become the law of the land, it needs ratification by 36 states. One by one, it passes through 35 states. The holdout states, of course, are in the South. And Tennessee becomes critical. Dr. Busey, tell us the story. How does Tennessee become critical and how does it play the role of becoming the 36th state to ratify the amendment?
3: It really wasn't until June that that Tennessee women started thinking, we have a chance, we have a chance. And yet they knew from the beginning it was a long shot we were down to two possible states whose governors might be willing to call a special session so that the legislatures could ratify the 19th Amendment. So Tennessee's governor, Albert Roberts, calls the special session for August the 9th. It passes the Tennessee Senate uh, fairly easily by a substantial margin. But it is at that point that the opposition, the antis, really went to work pressuring members of the Tennessee House not to support it. And they had powerful friends behind them doing a lot of the lobbying. So we get down to August the 18th. Tennessee has exhausted every delay tactic. And it looks like the antis have the vote. Seth Walker, the Speaker of the House steps down on the floor of the House and says, I move we put this amendment where it belongs on the table. In other words, we don't vote for it. But the vote to table the amendment did not pass. And so we get to the final vote. Before we and get to the final
1: vote, we're going to have a cliffhanger for a second, but I want you to talk about the Hermitage Hotel and what's happening there. This okay. lobbying, okay. This okay. lobbying effort is...
3: The juicy part. Okay. <laughs> okay. It, it,
1: it's so okay. important, I think, to the story, and, and I think it's amazing that both sides of this argument are meeting in the same place.
3: When Governor Roberts finally decides to call the special session, Carrie Chapman Catt comes to town in mid-July 1920, checks into the Hermitage hotel. The very next day, the opposition comes in. Miss Josephine Pearson from Mont Eagle, Tennessee, comes in, checks into the Hermitage Hotel. So we have both the antis and the suffragists checked in at the Hermitage Hotel, and it becomes the headquarters of both sides of the development. And that is where the lobbying took place. There's a room reportedly known as the Jack Daniels suite. (laughs) Keep in mind, this was when Tennessee was completely dry, and yet uh, men were being persuaded by the influence of alcohol to take a position. You can just imagine what the lobby of that was like with people wearing yellow roses if they supported women having the right to vote, or red flowers if they opposed women having the right to vote. It was quite a fight, and it was a cliffhanger. On August the 18th, the Tennessee House has run out of delays, and they are going to vote on the amendment. After a vote to table the amendment and not vote fails, the Tennessee House then decides to vote. And it looked like the antis had 49 votes, that the vote was going to be 49 against and 47 in favor. As the roll call begins, one of the early names on the list is Harry T. Byrne from Niota, Tennessee. He surprises everyone by voting aye. Well, that means the vote will be tied 48 to 48. But we still won't have a victory unless somebody else changes his vote.
1: Why did Mr. Byrne vote aye? Why did he change his vote?
3: Harry Byrne had told the suffragists the day before that if the vote was going to be won or lost by a significant margin, he would vote against it. He would only vote for it, which is what that meant. He would vote for it if his vote was going to make a difference. But all he said was, my vote will never hurt you. And then that morning, what should arrive at the state capitol but a letter from his mother in Nyota saying, help Mrs. Cat with her rats," <laughs> And that was in his pocket when he cast his vote, the letter from his mother telling him to support woman suffrage. And sure enough, it was a close vote, and his vote really did matter. And so he changes his vote, so the vote will be 48 to 48, which means it won't pass. And then further down the line, there is Banks Turner, a young representative from Gibson County, who changes his vote and votes I as well.
1: It's an amazing story.
3: It is an amazing story. And you will be surprised how long it took for this story to even get into our history books.
1: Hmm. So Tennessee becomes the 36th state, the 19th Amendment passes, and women have the right to vote. What What is the greatest lesson of the suffrage movement.
3: The greatest suff- lesson from the suffrage movement is it was a beginning, not an end. We've still got work to do. Voting rights one of the greatest things we can do as a nation right now is pass a Voting Rights Act and call it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and make sure that all Americans have an equal opportunity to vote.
1: Dr. Cale Busey, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your expertise with us. It's a wonderful story.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: On behalf of Joanne McClellan and Barry Gidcomb, as always, thank you both for joining me. I leave you with a quote from the early women's rights advocate Sarah Grimke, who wrote this in 1838. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright on the ground which God designed us to occupy. Prescient words even today. Thank you to our sponsor ServPro of Murray and Giles County for their ongoing support. Join us again next week as we connect history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by Pro of Murray and Giles County. Pro faster to any disaster.